0: Uh, hello, Shelby Road Baptist Church. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. That's great. So, uh, as you said, my name is Steve. I am uh, one of the small group's pastors on staff at Ada Bible Church in Grand Rapids, and I'm really excited and privileged to be here with you guys here today. Um, as some of you, as well, may know, as you just said, uh, I am married to Caitlin, who is this wonderful, beautiful, amazing person over here. <laughs> So, yes, that makes your pastor my father-in-law. So, here's the deal between you and me, okay? No matter what happens here this morning, just say really great things about it, okay? (laughs) It'll go a long way toward making my life a lot easier. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, Pastor McNeil is a wonderful father-in-law. In fact, he's the best ever that there was. Did they start the recording for the sermon yet? So, <laughs> it was the greatest. No, um, I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Uh, so let's get started. How many of you have ever taken a personality test before? Show of hands. There's plenty of them out there. Uh, a lot of them are uh, helpful. Some of them are less than helpful. How many of you have ever taken a personality test for a job? You've applied for job, they asked you some questions about yourself. Uh, I did this uh, when I was in college. I was, I think it was my junior or senior year, I needed another job to help pay for things like books and books and food. So I thought, hey, I'm going to apply to Family Christian Stores. You guys remember those? Family Christian Stores? Uh, They had one right inside of Cornerstone University's campus. And that's where I went to school. And I thought, this is literally a match made in heaven. This is going to be great. I love families. I'm a Christian. And I like stores. So this is going to go really well. I knew the people who worked there, and they wanted to hire me. They interviewed me. They wanted to hire me. And so I just sat back, and I waited for the good news. And a couple of days later, they called me up. They said, yeah, corporate's uh, not going to let us hire you. (laughs) And I thought, I'm applying to... Like, stock your shelves and stuff. How did corporate get involved in this? And they said, well, something on your personality test got flagged. <laughs> yes, I have failed a personality test. <laughs> okay. It's me, my name is Steve, and I failed a personality test. They said no. No can be a difficult answer to take, right? Uh, I think we've all experienced this on some level. I was frustrated when they said no, because I had to take no for an answer from them. Maybe you've experienced this in another area of life, uh, if you're a guy here and you've asked out a lady, and she said no, that can be hard, right? You will be okay, by the way, I promise you'll be fine. It happened to me many times, and I'm okay, all right? I have healed since then, I think. so. Maybe it's something different for you. Maybe last night, your whole family deliberated about what to do for dinner, and you wanted Mexican food, and they wanted chicken, and you got voted down. They said no. That can be particularly hard when you're craving tacos, right? If, you said, if they said no to a taco, maybe, maybe you tried out for a sports team, and you thought you had the talent, and you had it nailed, and they said no. This happened to me in middle school. I want to be on the middle school basketball team. They had two teams, the A team and the B team. You know what that means. I thought I had A team talent. They disagreed with me on that one. I had B team talent. That was hard to take. No for an answer can be very difficult. But maybe this goes even further for us. No can be a very difficult answer to take when it's an answer we have to take from God. What happens to our hearts When we have to take no for an answer from God, and it's something that we really wanted. It's something that means a lot to us. See, when we have to take no for an answer from other people, that can be frustrating. When we have to take no for an answer from God, that can be heartbreaking. And it can expose some things in our hearts that I think we need to pay attention to. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is what happens when God says no So, we're going to do this by jumping into a story in 2 Kings chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. In 2 Kings chapter 4, the story is currently going like this So, God's chosen people, Israel, they have stopped choosing him, and they have gone the way of worshiping false gods. And doing what's right in their own eyes. And so in 1 Kings, you see God send a prophet to them, a man who would proclaim God's truth to the nation and win back their hearts. That's in 1 Kings, you see that God sends Elijah. And then in 2 Kings, God sends his successor, Elisha. And that's the prophet that we're going to be talking about today. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, we're going to see that he meets a woman and We don't know a lot about this woman, but we know some important things. We don't even get her name in the text. All we know is that she is the woman from Shunem, or the Shunemite woman. But one of the things that we do know about her is that she's had to endure a no answer from God for a very, very long time. So let's begin the story. This is 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. It says this, One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. This is a pretty good deal for Elisha, right? Um, Back in that day, if you're God's on-call prophet, and you have to travel around a lot... You have to make accommodations, not a whole lot of holiday inns at this time in the nation of Israel. So they've got to figure out other ways to get food and to find places to stay. So this is a tremendous, tremendous blessing that the woman's offering to the prophet Elisha. She said to her husband, this is verse 9, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and let's go to Ikea, and let's put in a bed, and a table, and a chair, and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. So we know that this woman is generous with what she has. She's wealthy, she's married, she loves to cook, and she's got space. So she's giving it over to God, and so that he can use it to bless Elisha, his servant. This is tremendous. In fact, This is even bigger than we think it is, or than it sounds on the page. Um, You take a look at the screen. This is what an Israelite house roughly would have looked like at this time. You can see at the top, there's that room uh, that uh, would have been added on for either the family space or, as it is in the story, Elisha. Now, again, this is rooftop space. For us, rooftop space is not usable space, right? You don't see a lot of us hanging out on our roofs very often. And if we are, we're concerned about what's happening at that house. But in Israel, it was not unusual to have families hang out on the roof. So this is living space that the woman is giving up. She's giving up usable space to house the prophet Elisha in a really, really generous, generous way. Let's continue with verse 11. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant, Gehazi, call the Shunammite." So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? I've got pull, so I can put in a good word for you. She replied, I have, come, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her, Elisha asked. And Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. This is where the story gets very real. The inability to have children, even for us today, is an incredibly sensitive and painful subject, right? Well, it was the same way back then, but it was even more than that, because at this time, if you don't, if you don't have a child, especially if you don't have a son, this was almost a death sentence. Because for her and for, for women in this time, to have a son was your social security. That was your retirement fund. It was your retirement plan. That's how you knew and could ensure that you would be taken care of in the future. She has no son. And on top of this, on top of all of this, to not have a son and to not be able to bear children was a disgrace socially at this time. People would look at this woman and would say, what did she do to offend God? Clearly she has done something wrong. Clearly there's something wrong with her that she can't have children. Just because God says no does not mean that it's our fault. Right? Sometimes there's other things going on. In fact, a lot of times there are. How many times do you think she prayed for a son? hundreds? Maybe. How many times did God say no? The same amount of times at this point in the story. But she is doing something remarkable still. She is says yes to God. She's saying yes to God even when he says no to her. She's saying yes to God even when she's getting a no back from the Lord in this really important area of her life. She is actually a faithful woman in a lot of ways. But that's not all that she is. In fact, we're going to see here in a moment, that she hasn't said yes to the Lord in every area of her life. So let's keep the story going in verse 15. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway and he said, about this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. And then she said, yes, woo-hoo, thank you, Elisha. It's what I've been waiting for all of my life. Nope, that's not what she said. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. What an interesting response from the woman. Think about this with me for a moment. If you had God's rock star prophet, Elisha, you know, if there's anybody on earth at this time who has kind of a high speed internet connection to God, it's Elisha, right? And if you have him in the living room and he is telling you the thing that you have wanted your whole life, this thing that you've wanted the most is about to come to pass, you are right around the corner. If that happened to me, I think I'd shout for joy right? I would do laps around the house shouting for joy. And then I would go dunk a basketball because that's what I've wanted to do since I was in middle school and God was answering my prayer. I dream big. But seriously though, wouldn't you shout for joy? Wouldn't you? No, she says, no, don't go there. That's what she says. Why does she say that? I think it's because it opens up a wound that she closed a long time ago, but it never really healed. I think that she has wanted a son for so long, and God has said no. She has gotten a no answer from the Lord over and over again for such a long time that she's done something that happens to us frequently when God says no over and over again. See, when God says no, I stop praying and I start protecting I have a tendency to stop praying and start protecting. I'm not going to ask God for that anymore. I'm going to protect my heart and insulate it from the pain of God's no answer. So I'm not going to worry about that. right? I'm just going to do what's in front of me. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, and I'm going to do what God expects me to do, and that's I'm going to stay focused on that. God's prophet Elisha comes into town, yeah, I'll make him food. We'll, even build, we'll build a room for him. We'll put all kinds of nice stuff in the room. It'll be great. I'll give up my living space. That's fine. But I'm not going to go to this area because that area is closed off. It's a form of self-protecting. Right? I think that's what happens when she said, she said, I'm, she said I have a home among my own people. I think what she meant there is, I'm good. I have hometown connections. I have, I have everything that I need here. I've got everything that I need. I don't need anything from... God's prophet. See, she's faithful, but she's also flawed. She's faithful, but she's also flawed. Just like us sometimes, right? I think that this is true of us. She's been in pain for a long, long time. Heart kind of pain. And she's not responded perfectly to the pain. And what of us, what of us does? Who of us responds perfectly to pain? We don't. But what happens is, because of our sin, we, we're very self-focused, and we think we know what's best. We think we know best how our life should go. We think we know best how our life should go, and when God, in his great wisdom, disagrees with us, we tend to take our heart into our own hands. I don't trust him with it anymore. Or we just write God off altogether and say, he can't be trusted. You know, I'm, I'm done with him Completely. Is this any of us here today? It's been me in the past. It's possible to say yes to God in almost every area of your life and still say no to Him with your heart. This woman is faithful, but she doesn't actually have a whole lot of faith. She really doesn't. Because what happens is we get a little bit bitter and we can't imagine a reason why. God would say no to me. This is a good thing, Lord. I'm asking for a good thing. We've wanted a child for the longest time. That's not a bad thing. I've I've wanted, I've needed a job. I have to provide for my family. I've needed a job, and time and time again, I get dressed up and I go to the interview and I do the interview, and time and time again, it's no, 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 no. We can grow bitter because we can't imagine a reason why God would say no to a good thing. Let's do a little thought exercise here today, okay? Uh, Those of you who either have, you you are parents to small children, or you watch small children, raise your hand. Maybe. First of all, blessings on you. May God give you strength and perseverance and private time, okay? May he bless you with all of those things. For those of you who watch little children or you have small children, uh, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine with me right now, I want you to imagine in your mind a scenario in which you might say no to your child. I know it's hard, okay? You just have have to stretch your imagination with me, okay? Imagine a scenario in which you might say no to even a good thing. See, I don't have kids yet. All right, but I can imagine this from the other side. I was a kid. I was five years old, and this was my thought process sugar is good. So one sucker is good, 12 suckers is better. But then my parents said no, and I didn't understand that. That didn't compute when I was five years old. It didn't make it through my head. But they said no because they knew things I didn't know. Like sugar's bad for you. That doesn't make any sense in a five-year-old brain. It doesn't make any sense at all. How can it it tastes so good? How can it be bad for me? How can how can how can a good thing possibly not be the right thing? I don't know that. See, it's not totally apples to apples because, you know, I'm, I'm not a five-year-old. But at the same time, I'm God's child, and he's my heavenly father. And he knows things that I don't know. You don't know what he knows, right? Okay, so here's, here's the deal. Tim, Tim Keller says it like this. I really appreciate this quote. He said, God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. The difference many times, if I'm not letting unrepentant sin get in the way, the difference many, many times between God saying yes to me and God saying no to me is information. It's information. You don't know what he knows. You don't know what he knows. And just because I can't imagine or think of a good reason why God would say no doesn't mean there isn't one. just means I don't have access to it. I don't have access to that information. You see, from the Shunammite woman's perspective, the only thing that God has really done in her life, personally, for many, many years, is just say no. Well, things are about to change. 2 Kings 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 17. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew. And one day, he went out to his father... Who was with the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. Probably some kind of sunstroke or heat stroke. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door and went out. What happens... When God says no for a really, really long time. And then he says yes. And then not long after that, it's a, it's a no again. What happens when you lose the thing that you've been so yearning for for such a long time? This is a difficult space. Um, British pastor Charles Spurgeon says this. This quote is up on the screen as well. It says, all earthly mercies are of uncertain tenure... And what that means is, even when God says yes, and gives us a good gift, we have no idea how long it'll last, because God gets to the side, and we live in a broken world. God gets to the side, and we live in a broken world. So, the woman, understandably upset, verse 25, so she set out. And came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? See, this is the phone call that you get from a friend, but it's not the phone call you get at two in the afternoon asking, What's up? This is the phone call you get at two in the morning, and the first question is not, What's up? It's, What happened? He knows there's something very, very wrong as he sees her approaching. He goes to her house, right? He stays at her place. He doesn't come to his doorstep, except today. And listen to the first words that come out of her mouth. This is, this is verse 28. The first words, the first thing she says to the prophet Elisha. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Ouch. Didn't I ask for this? I didn't ask for this. I was fine. And now I'm worse off than I was before. What's God doing here? What's God doing with this woman? And what's He doing with her heart? See, the Shunammite woman's life was humming along just fine before God got involved. Right? She had designed a life for herself that. Man, she didn't have to think about her pain, she didn't have to think about her heart or her desires, she was just doing what she believed God wanted her to do, which is partially true, and just doing life like that. See, this is the journey of faith. This is the journey of faith, and this is where things get really uncomfortable for us, because uh, God, is the, God is the captain on this one, of the journey of faith. I don't get to decide whether I go left or right, or really what happens in life very much, this is in God's hands. And when, when we trust God on the journey of faith with our heart, man, that's vulnerable, and that's really, really difficult. See, the woman had done this for a while, but after a little while, she decided, well, she pre-decided that the answer that she would get from God, again, if she asked for a son, would probably be no. So she just insulated her heart from the pain. And the problem is on the journey of faith, when you insulate your heart from the pain, when you insulate your heart from God, you insulate your heart from faith. This isn't trust. The journey of faith takes us from independence. I, I have a home among my own people. I'm good. I don't need anything from God's prophet. It takes us from independence over to radical dependence on God. Radical dependence and radical trust. We only learn to radically depend on God when things are uncertain and uncomfortable. So Elisha tells the servant to run ahead of him and to try reviving the boy with his staff. That doesn't work. So Elisha follows and goes to the house. And this is the scene that we see in verse 32. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. He's received the breath of life again. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When he came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground, and she took her son and went out. She has her son back. God has performed an incredible miracle here. Happily ever after, right? This is where we want the story to end. And if this were a story about a son who died and God brought him back to life and reunited the family, if that's what the story was totally about, then yes, the story would end here. But that's not what the story is about. The story is about God who desires and demands radical trust and radical dependence from his people, even at a heart level. That's what the story is about. So actually, her story doesn't end here in chapter 4. Her story picks up again a few chapters later in chapter 8. And we see that the difficulties are not necessarily over for the woman from Shunem turns chapter 8 verse 1 Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he'd restored to life go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last 7 years so there's not going to be rain for a while because God says so The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. There's a few things to notice here. She's got to appeal to the king for her house and her land after seven years. You remember all the wealth You remember the woman who said, I have a home among my own people. I've got hometown connections. I'm good. She's got wealth. She has status. She had a husband. All of it is gone now. All of it's gone. Even the husband, who's not mentioned here, by the way, and the fact that she is considering appealing to the king herself means that her husband isn't alive to do it for her anymore. And her son, resurrected son, is not yet old enough to handle this stuff. See, trace this woman's rhythm in the story for a moment with me. The rhythm of the story, the journey of faith. She has all of these things, the wealth and the husband and the status and the house doesn't have a son. Then she gets the son. Then she loses the son. Then she gets the son back. Then she loses everything else, including living in her hometown, and then she loses her husband. So the question here at this point in the story is, who is going to look out for her now? God has brought her to a place of dependence on him and on him alone. Because God knows, God knows that independence is lethal to the heart of the sinner independence feeds my pride it doesn't feed my faith and faith only grows when it gets fed and faith is only fed when i starve my pride independence is lethal to the heart of the sinner but he brings her to this incredible place of dependence who is going to watch out for her now watch this watch what happens Verse 3 again. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. In a famine situation, kings would land grab. That's probably what happened here. She lost all of her stuff to the king, to the crown, so she got to appeal, appeal to him to get it back. This was not a guarantee. Verse 4. The king was talking to Gehazi. The servant of the man of God, Elisha's number two guy who was there for the whole son thing, he's there with the king at that moment. And the king said, tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to appeal to the king for her house and her land. The moment that she, seven years later, the moment that she goes to appeal to the king for her house and her land, the exact moment just happens that Elisha's number two guy is there hanging with the king and telling him about her story. What are the chances of that? What are the chances of that? Seven years later, I'll tell you what the chances are. There's zero. This is not about chance. This is a divine appointment. Who's looking out for the woman now? it's God. He's arranging things in the background, always working. See, even when God says no in your life, he's always working. And if you say yes to him, there's an interesting thing that tends to happen here. If you concern yourself with God's business, he concerns himself with yours. Now, it might not work out the way that you thought it would, that no answer from God might not ever become a yes in this life. God gets to decide. He's God. He's a good father, and he gets to decide. But he wants to show you on the journey of faith that he is, he's worthy of your yes. He's worthy of you saying yes to him even when he says no to you. He's worthy of your trust and your radical dependence because he's working even when you don't see it, even when you can't understand it, He's working. So, how do we become people who can say yes to God even when He says no to us? How can we do that? I think we need to remember four things, right? And these actually are not in your notes. Uh, so you're going to need to write them down fully if you want to take them down. I I suggest that you should, um, because they're they're helpful to me. They've been very helpful to me, and I I think they'll be helpful to you as well. How can we say yes to God even when he says no to us? Four things we've got to remember. Here's number one. It is what it is, but it's not what it seems. It is what it is, but it's not what it seems. No one has ever used that phrase positively, by the way. It is what it is. Have you ever found $5 in your pocket that you didn't know you had? It's like finding a 1000 right? Like, man, this is great. Nobody has ever found $5 in their pocket and said, this is what it is. You only say it is what it is when there's a situation that you would change if you could, but you can't change it. Right? This is frequently the position that we find ourselves in when God says no. It is what it is. But I want to add to it a little edit to that phrase that I heard from a pastor a while back, and I absolutely loved it. It said, but it's not what it seems. See, when God says no, it seems like he doesn't care about me. When God says no, it seems like he doesn't love me anymore. It seems like he's forgotten about me. It seems like he doesn't really have my best interests at heart when he says no it seems like that but my copy of the bible says that none of those things are true which means it is what it is he has said no but it's not what it seems you got to remember that that's number one here's number two jesus knows what it's like to have god say no jesus knows what it's like to have god say no the night before Jesus went to the cross for my sin and for yours, he was in a garden, and he went off alone in the garden, and he prayed to God the Father. And he asked him three different times, three different times, if there's another way to do this. Three different times he said, if, if, it, if it's your will, then let this cup pass from me. That was the divine, Old Testament, divine cup of wrath from God that we were supposed to drink from, by the way. Because of our sin. Knowing that this is ahead of him, Jesus asked three different times if there's any other way to do this, and three different times God, his heavenly Father, who is well pleased with his Son, looks down and says, no, no, no. And what did Jesus do? He said yes. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that he did. So when you're in that position, You've asked for something, means a lot to you. God said no. Just remember, you serve a Savior who knows what that's like. He knows what it's like. That's number two. Number three, God has already given me more than he will ever withhold from me. God has already given me more than he will ever Withhold from me. Uh, I put this verse up on the screen because I didn't want you to frantically turn to it. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is talking about Jesus. And I love how he talks about Jesus here. It starts in verse 18. It says, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy... Was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. Now, before we get to the last part, <clears throat> if, you, if you are struggling in this area, God has said no to you, and you are struggling with continuing to say yes to him over and over and over again in faith, this is your verse, okay? Second Corinthians 1.20. This is, write it down. Uh, put it on a post-it note and stick it on your card dashboard or do something. Do whatever you got to do. Keep this in front of your face, in front of your eyes and your mind, because this is it. Verse one or Verse 20, chapter 1. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are, what's that word? Yes. yes in Christ. God said yes to you over and over and over and over again in Christ before you even asked him for anything. And by the way, that yes cost him everything. Don't know why God says no sometimes, but it can't be because he doesn't care. It can't be because he doesn't love you. He already said yes in Jesus. He's already given me more than he will ever withhold from me. That's number three. Here's number four. Radical trust is obedience. Trust and Obey, right? Now, we as pastors, sometimes we say, trust God, trust God. And I don't think that we define it very well, very frequently, because a lot of us end up walking away from that thinking that trust is a feeling. I feel like I trust God, or I feel like I have uh, a certain level of confidence in God. And I was going to work really hard here to define trust for you, but I actually realized I didn't have to do that. Because an old hymn already did. little story as we close. There's a Dwight L. Moody evangelistic rally. Probably about 125, 150 years ago. And there was a young man there who had just recently heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he stood up to share his testimony. And he was sharing his testimony and he said, Man, I believe, you know, but, but this whole thing that Jesus came down and he went to the cross for the, you know, to, say, to take the penalty of my sin and then three days later was risen from the dead and then after that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and eventually he's going to come back to make everything right. That whole thing, it's, it just seems too good to be true sometimes. And sometimes I'm just, you know, I struggle with being certain. He said, I'm not quite sure sometimes, but then he said this, but I'm going to trust, and I'm going to obey. And there was a song leader there at the, in the room at the same time. He, he was so struck by this phrase that he wrote it down, and he put it on a piece of paper and stuck it in his pocket. And then he went and hung out with a friend of his named John Samus. And he told John Samus this story of what the young man said. He said, I'm not quite sure sometimes, but I'm going to trust, and I'm going to obey. And John Samus was so affected by this that he went and he wrote a song. And the song goes like this. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Look at the third verse of John Samus' song: "Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we what? Trust and obey. You know why trust and obedience go hand in hand? Because you can't do one without doing the other. You can't say you trust God if you, if you don't obey him. Jesus said, you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. How can you call me Lord then? This is, this is a big deal. If you want to trust God and get to a place where your heart is vulnerably trusting God more and more, you've got to obey. You've got to say yes to him even if he says no to you. So here's my challenge to you this morning. Find one area, one, in your life that you know you're saying no to God right now and say yes. One. Do it this week. Don't let it wait. Do it this week. One area in your life you know you're saying no. Maybe it's an area of morality. you got to stop doing something God told you to stop doing. For a long time you've been saying no to him. Say yes. It's time to do it. Maybe it's an area of generosity, or or, or he's calling you to to go and extend yourself to connect with this other person who needs connection. I don't know what it is. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to, to reveal something to you in this moment. But whatever it is, something you know you've been saying no to, say yes this week. Take the steps. And slowly, I think you will start to see, as you do this more and more, that God is worthy of being trusted. And your heart will slowly move from independence to dependence on him. So you can continue to be a person that says yes to him even if he says no to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that you are a God who can be trusted. And you have proven that you can be trusted over and over and over again. And I just pray you help us to keep those things in mind, Lord. Or you have already given so much more to us than you'll ever withhold from us. Help us to trust you radically as we walk from here and to find the one thing, Lord, that you want us to say yes to you in that we've been saying no in. And by your grace and patience, Lord, we can do this and take the steps to be people who trust you. And we thank you so much for what you've given us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.